0: Why do soldiers eat food? My son Nathan had only seen soldiers in movies and thinking about his favorite shows. And uh, they were sort of akin to Star Wars figures, Luke Skywalker or Spider-Man or Superman. This is the way he thought about soldiers army men with with kind of superpowers. And so we were in Buffalo Wild Wings celebrating his birthday, eating chicken wings, talking about manly stuff, and all of a sudden, uh, some guys, I, I guess from the National Guard there in Lexington, walked in, soldiers, and they had their uniforms on. And he was immediately shocked and he was kind of mem- mesmerized by them, and he watched them come in, and he watched them sit down and eat, and they were eating wings just like us. And he looked at me and he said, why do soldiers eat food? That, that's the way he phrased his question. He was amazed by that reality that he saw across the room. I mean, shouldn't these guys be jumping out of helicopters? Shouldn't they be shooting bad guys and rescuing someone? And the simplicity of his question just expressed his amazement that soldiers were people, flesh and blood, who do normal things and go to places just like everyone else. And this is the same kind of amazement that the Apostle John is trying to communicate about Jesus Christ in his gospel. John, after Jesus has died on the cross and been raised from the dead, John realizes that he was an eyewitness to the glory of God in flesh. And as he begins to think about who Jesus really was before him in flesh and blood, he's amazed. And so John tells the story of Jesus Christ at weddings, talking to Prostitute women by wells getting water. Conversations as he enjoyed get-togethers at friends' homes. He tells the story in this sort of amazement looking back that the glory of God was in flesh and blood, sleeping on boats in his presence. And yes, eating food. The Apostle John is amazed by that reality. And he immediately, as he begins his gospel, wants to draw us in on this deep, profound, amazing reality that God has taken on flesh. What we call the incarnation, the infleshing of God. And he wants to expand our minds and our hearts and prompt our wills to serve the Word. In chapter 1, he articulates who Jesus was eternally. And this culminates at verse 14 in this shocking reality. In light of who Jesus was and is eternally, verse 14 is to blow our minds. It is to cause amazement, scandalous, shocking amazement. Notice verse 14 of chapter 1. And the word became flesh. This word, word, it is the word logos, and it means declaration or expression. It was a Greek philosophical term that meant reason or explanation. It's where we get the suffix ology when we talk about the study of something or the explanation of something. Biology is the study of life or the explanation of life. Theology is the study of God or the explanation of God. And here he he begins, John actually begins the whole gospel talking about the word, which is the explanation or the reason of all things. Because He created all things and He writes to Gentiles and He writes to Jews alike and He's declaring to them this reason, this explanation for all things was among us. You see, the Jew believed that God's Word, God's logos, God's message, God's declaration was what created all things. And so the Jew understood that it is God's word that gives reason and explanation to all things. But John wants to communicate even further, not what the word is, but who the word is, who the reason is. And here John is saying the reason for all things is Jesus Christ, God's ultimate word, God's ultimate explanation, God's ultimate expression And in the first five verses of John, he communicates that this Word, who is Jesus, is eternal. He begins the Gospel in saying, in the beginning, meaning when God created everything. God was there before anything existed, and the Word was already there too. Jesus was already there in the beginning when God created everything. He says, and he was with God, meaning he was alongside God. And so we we think about God the Father who was there in the beginning. And, And John is communicating Jesus, the Word, was already there too. The Son of God was already there alongside the Father, distinct from the Father. But he also says in the first part of the Gospel, he was with God, but he was also God. He was God in essence. This word is one of the Trinity, the three persons who are distinct persons, but they are also equally in essence God. And so God was there in the beginning. He is eternal. He had no beginning. And here he says, so was Jesus. Jesus is eternal. But then, in calling him the Word, he is saying Jesus is both God and a Word from God. Not just a Word, the Word from God, revealing to us the reason for all things. And so, to begin with, when we think about the incarnation, the infleshing of God, we are thinking about the infleshing of the Word, the reason. The explanation of all things. And so, what does that mean for you? Well, the reason for your life, Jesus Christ, has taken on flesh and blood. When you think about why do I exist? Why does anything exist? What is the meaning and purpose of my life? John says, well, you go back to the beginning and the one who created everything has to determine why you exist And he even refers to him as light. He is the light of men, meaning he is the the one who gives meaning to all men, enlightenment to all men. Why do we exist? What do we exist for? The word tells you. And the word just doesn't tell you. The word is why you exist. And so you're here today and maybe you're, you're trying to figure out the world around you. Why do I exist? Why am I here? Where did I come from? Where did all things come from? And some of you are trying to figure out your why in looking at the temporal things that you're a part of. Why do I exist? Well, you start with your job. You really love your job, you're committed to your job. You start with your family. I exist because or for my family. Or, or or insert anything into that. Why do you exist? How do you fill in that blank? And if you do not start with the Word, who is the reason for everything, you will constantly be searching for your why. Why do I exist? What is the reason for my existence? And you will constantly be latching on to other reasons and whys, and and you will be unfulfilled, and you will never get the answers you're seeking, and you will constantly be doubting why you exist Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, All things begin and come through and are for Jesus Christ. Jesus, John says, is the one who created you. And so only Jesus can define why you exist. And so today you understand at the incarnation, your why, the reason for all things took on flesh, and you make him. The the, the beginning, all things began because of him. Your life must begin in him and for him. And everything else, all your other whys and all of your other reasons fit in context of him and his plans and purposes. That's the only way you're going to find contentment in this life because it is a life the word created and placed you in. Notice as this verse continues, The reason, the explanation for all things, notice he says, became flesh. This is to be mind-blowing. The the word, God's expression, God's revelation of himself became flesh, meaning he took on humanity or mankind. This is where we get the word incarnation, the infleshing of God. The enfleshing of the Word. The enfleshing of the Son in human form. God, the meaning, the reason, the light of all things takes on human flesh. The reason why we exist had flesh and blood, teeth, and toenails. Think about that. The Word of God took on flesh flesh. The son who for eternity was God, meaning he's always been God, which means he's always had the essence of God, whatever it takes to be God, the son was and has always been. And then in human history, he takes on humanity, flesh and blood, meaning he takes on everything it means to be a human. Sometimes we think about this reality and we think, well, God just occupied a body for a certain time, for 33 years. He inhabited flesh and blood for a certain time. No, he took on everything it meant to be human, And this didn't change his deity. It didn't add to his deity. He took this on. He was 100% God, and then he became 100% man. And he wasn't playing a video game. Everything that you experience as a human, God took on to experience. The human experience... was experienced by God, the Word in flesh. It wasn't through an avatar. He became a man. From embryo to toddler to adolescence to manhood to flesh and blood nailed to a cross to flesh and blood raised from the dead. There's human experiences that you haven't experienced yet that Jesus has experienced as a human, and that is being raised from the dead and being and ruling and reigning at the right hand of God now. He experiences that not just as God, but also as 100% man. Isn't that mind-blowing? He had fish stuck in his teeth at times. He had sweat under his arms. He was sunburnt. He had dirt under his fingernails. As he stood on the side of a boat... The hair on his arms raised at times when the sun beat down and there was a cool breeze at the same time. 33 years of stress, work, meals, smelling good and bad things, laughing, crying, and even being angry in righteous indignation. He experienced life as a man and everything it meant to be a man. 100% human. And notice how John continues to explain this to us. He says he dwelt among us. This means to set up a tent, to take up residence, to move in, to make home. And and using this word dwelt, John wants to communicate the same imagery of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Remember when the people of God were in the wilderness, God tabernacled with them. They constructed this massive tent in the wilderness. And this is where they worshiped God. And through sacrifices, God's glory and God's presence rested with them. And as long as they made sacrifices for their sins, and as long as they, they honored God, His presence lived with them in the wilderness. And John picks up on that imagery. He says, in this wilderness... This world, cursed by sin and death, as we live here and we look to the promised land of glory, Jesus has come and tabernacled with us. And we know and we experience the the presence of God because He came to live with us. He resided with us. He tabernacled with us in this wilderness. But notice it says... And I want to be clear, notice, dwelt among us. This is in our midst. And one of the things John wants to communicate here is when he came and dwelt with us, it wasn't like the Old Testament tabernacle, where there was a veil that separated the presence of God from the people of God. He took on flesh to be unshielded to be exposed even to the uncleanness and wickedness of our sin. He dwelt among us. He wasn't shielded by a veil. And, and, and this is a statement of love to us. To live with someone is to love someone. I'm often to meet with couples that are getting married and I ask the question, why do you want to get married? Well, I the very first answer always is because I love them. And I always say, well, you think you love them. Wait until you live with them. Then you will know if you love them or not, and you can't do that until you're married. You're committing now to love them. You, you realize you love someone when you begin to live with them, when you're married. Think about all of the things that living with someone, uh, all of the irritations and frustrations that come about. Toothpaste on the bathroom mirror just kind of irritates you, right? Or me. The smacking of food when people eat around you. Think, think about what he had to endure to love us. Think about the, those closest to you, the way that they hurt you. And the way that even you hurt other people, the people that you live with, those you're married to, your family, and, and you realize you can do certain things to them, you can say certain things to them, and they have to love you. And you have to endure those things. Think about all of the things that the perfect, sinless Son of God had to endure on planet Earth as He chose to live with us. I mean, he was sinless perfection. And he had to live among people who declared their self-righteousness. And he looked upon them as if, you're a joke. Your self-righteousness is a, I'm sinless perfection in flesh. Think about him having to endure that. Think about the one who is eternally wise. In flesh, And he knows the goodness of, of rightness because that's who he is. And he looks around at sinful, wicked rebellion. And, and remember how his heart broke as he looked upon the people of God. And, and, and the text says he had compassion because they were sheep without a shepherd. And it broke his heart. To have to see sin and rebellion. Think about the things he had to endure to live with us. Incarnation is love in flesh and blood, living among us. He loves us, so He lives among us. And so you can trust today that God loves you because Jesus came to live with you. And your most irritating, your most vile, your most wicked behavior, He has chosen to endure and even die for. Think about your worst qualities. Think about the sins you struggle with the most. You just won't give up on. And often you're throwing those things in God's face. I'm going to do this anyway. Jesus still came to live and die for those things. He dwelt among us means He loved us. But notice John continues, and we have seen His glory. Now this word glory It's actually really hard to describe and define in the Bible. We use it a lot, but it's a really difficult word because the word really just means weight. It means gravity, means that God has more weight and gravity than anybody else, means he has more authority than anybody else. And it normally refers to a brilliant display of his authority. A brilliant display of all of his rightness, all of his purity, all of his gravity shown and exposed at once. And the Bible's clear, we can't take that in. And so when John says, We have seen his glory, that is to be shocking to you. Really? He took on flesh, and so he hid his glory, but in flesh, we have seen his glory. We're not supposed to see his glory. Remember Moses in Exodus 33? I would encourage you to go read that chapter today. Moses is intent on seeing God's glory. He says, I, I've heard everything you have to say and everything that you've promised your people. If you're really going to go and be with us, God, let me see your glory, let me see your face. You can't see my glory, my weight exposed, or you will crumble and die. And why is this? Well, Paul tells us in Romans when he says, we have all sinned and we fall short of God's glory, meaning we don't have the authority to do whatever we want, but we sin and we try to do whatever we want, even though we don't have that authority. We are sinful, and we are not sovereign. We're not sovereign king, and yet we act like it. That's what it means to fall short of God's glory, is that we don't have that weight, we don't have that authority, we don't have that gravitas, and yet we act like we do. We're not sovereign, and we're sinful. And so our eyes can't take in the brilliance of God's glory. Because we're sinful. We're impure in heart. And that flows into everything that we are and everything that we do. And so our eyes can't take in the unshielded glory of God. It will kill us. Why? Because we don't have that weight. And we can't handle that weight. You know what it's like when someone with authority shows up and, and you immediately begin to think, what have I done wrong? Oh my goodness, are they here for me? Well, have you done anything criminal? No, then why? But you just have that fear. It's like when you're driving your car and you, you come across this hill out here on Keeneland and you see that policeman up there at the storage and you immediately think, I must be going 75. And you're not. <laughs> well, hopefully you're not. Some of you are because you've gotten tickets and anyway... But it, it, that's what his authority and weight and glory does to us is we are struck by this ultimate authority, ultimate rule, and it brings us to our knees because we can't handle it. Why? Because by nature, we break his authority. We rebel against his authority. And so it overwhelms us to be in his authority. The guilt of our sin cannot handle his rightness, our wrongness is struck and shocked and shaken by his rightness. And that's what John says. We saw his glory in flesh and blood. We saw saw a man who is sovereign in control of all things and has authority over all things. We saw that glory, and he's also sinless. We saw it in flesh and blood. His flesh, in some sense... Shielded it from us. Saved us from seeing it all at once. But we still saw His authority. We still saw His rightness. And we heard it as He preached. Incarnation is God's glory in flesh and blood. And your greatest problem is you think you're God's glory in flesh and blood. This is your greatest struggle. Your worst problem is the sort of narcissism And my worst problem is when we begin to think I am the center of the world, I am God's authority. I am sinless perfection in flesh and blood. Now, you may never say that, but you often think it and you often feel it and you often react in flesh and blood like you are. Sometimes you think you're sinless. You think your wisdom makes more sense than God's or anybody else's around you because you think if I do this, if I say this, if I get this, I will be happy. And that's sinful wisdom. But you're acting like it's pure, undefiled wisdom, and you chase after things that aren't good for you. You think you are sinless. You think you're entitled to what you want. Well, it must be right for me. And We are most worried and angry and frustrated when we act as though we are sovereign. When we act as though we have that sinless authority. And we worry. I want to know what the future holds. Well, you can't. Only God does. I I want this person to act this way. Even people who aren't acting right and, and doing things that aren't good for them, you begin to think you are sovereign king and if they would just do this... And you get frustrated. That's a revelation inside you that you're not sovereign. You're not Jesus. And your greatest problem is you think you're God's glory in flesh, but only Jesus was God's glory in flesh. And notice how he continues to explain the glory that we've seen. Notice we have seen his glory. Notice the phrase glory as of the only son from the Father the only son. Now, to be a son is to share the father's likeness, to share his essence. That's what, that's what the word son actually at the heart means. If you're a son, you share your father's essence. And so Jesus, as the son of God, is like the father. That's why in verse 18 in this section, John says, in Jesus, we have seen the Father. He has revealed the Father to us because he has the same likeness and nature of the Father, but it was in flesh. And so we would say the glory and weight of the holy God of this universe, God the Father, was in flesh, in the flesh. And how do we know? Because Jesus was the Son of God. And he shared the same likeness. And he displayed this glory. Remember at Jesus' baptism, and that's an event in the Bible that is so important. We refer to it a lot around here. When Jesus comes out of the water at his baptism, the Father says these words, Behold, look, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. What does that mean? I'm just happy? This is my boy? No, what he's saying here is, is this is my son and he shares my likeness and I am well pleased. I am happy to wrap all of my plans and purposes in him because he shares my likeness. At Jesus' baptism, he is anointed as the son, which means king. God says, I'm going to display my authority, my glory in him. And this is what we see when Jesus performs miracles. We see the glory of God, God's weight and God's authority displayed in flesh and blood. Because Jesus walks out and and He begins to speak to demons and He casts out demons. What do we see there? God's glory and authority, the essence of the Father in flesh and blood making things right. Asserting His power and authority on behalf of God. When He heals the sick, When people who haven't walked their whole life or been able to see their whole life and they get up and walk, what do we see? The Father's essence, the Father's authority, the Father's glory in flesh and blood. The Son, God's King, is displaying that for us. God's authority and God's power we have seen. His sinless perfection. We see sinlessness and sovereignty in flesh and blood, making things that are wrong, right, giving us a window into God's eternal kingdom. And this is why, if you remember the story when Jesus calms the wind and waves, and you remember at one point, Peter looks up at Jesus in that story, and he says, get away from me to Jesus. Now, if you're Peter and all Jesus is doing is displaying, you know, some kind of pagan magic, you're looking on and saying, do it again. Do it again. Let's do another trick. Perform another magic trick, Jesus. You've done all of these amazing things. You've killed trees just by speaking. Let's do some more magic. No. What Peter understands in flesh and blood is there is a purity and there is a, a, an authority that he doesn't have. In the same way Isaiah in the temple tried to crawl through the floor, Peter sees in the signs and wonders and the authority of Jesus' word. Sinless perfection. Sovereignty to make it all right. And it overwhelms him. He sees the glory of God. And though it is veiled by flesh and blood, it is still overwhelming. And notice John continues in the text. He says, we've seen his glory of the only father. The Father's given him that authority, full of grace and truth. Now, these two words are synonymous in the Old Testament. And we just got through with Nehemiah. It, it, these, these words, are, they, they take the meaning of what we talked about in Nehemiah of hesed. God's unconditional faithfulness to those who are unfaithful. And so we've seen his glory, and his glory is summed up in his faithfulness, his loving kindness and, and truth, which means his commitment to you no matter what. He is true to you. And notice it says full of grace and truth, meaning that his faithfulness lacks nothing. It's complete in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And we talked about this in Nehemiah. God's glory is always tied to his faithfulness. God doesn't just stay over here and say, I'm glorious, I'm awesome. No, he displays his glory in being faithful to a people. And his name communicates this. Remember when... God told Moses to go to Egypt and to lead his people out of bondage. Moses in Exodus 6 says, Okay, but who should I tell them has come to deliver them? And he says, Yahweh. And it means, I am who I am, which means I do what I say I will do. And and so God says, I'm glorious. And I'm going to make a promise to a people to rescue them. And I'm going to prove I'm glorious by rescuing them. And so you tell them that I am the only one on the planet in the universe that always does what I say I will do. I am distinct. I am set apart in that way. Even when Moses wanted to see God's glory, he wanted to see his face What God over and over in that section of Scripture says, Moses, you don't need to see me. Why? You've heard my name. You've seen me in my promises. You've heard me say, I will do what I say I will do, and you've seen me do it. You've seen enough of me. You don't need to see me face to face. And by the way, it would kill you. And so what does he do for Moses? He says, I'm going to give you just a little glimpse Now, Moses, you go hide in a rock and and I'm going to pass by and I'm going to give you just enough glory that you can take it in. Just enough weight, just enough authority, just enough purity. But what does the text say when God passes by Moses in the rock? He says he declared his name to him. And so what he is saying to Moses is you you can't see me, you don't need to see me, and you've seen enough of me in my name to trust me. You've heard enough to trust me and to know enough about me. You need to hear, I do what I say I will do. And so one of the things John is communicating here is Moses, you see the mention of Moses all through this section, Moses heard God's promise but now we have seen God's fulfillment in Jesus Christ flesh and blood, thorough and complete. We have seen Yahweh in flesh, a fulfilled promise standing before us. That's why throughout the book of John, Jesus often says, "I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light." What is he saying? "I'm Yahweh." And you have seen a fulfilled promise in flesh and blood. Moses heard it. He got a glimpse of it. You've seen it in full. And how have we seen God's promises in full except on a bloody cross where this flesh and this glory is killed and destroyed for our sins? This is what it means to say, in Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen. They are complete. And what does that mean for you? God has done everything he needs to do to be faithful to you in Jesus Christ, in the promise, in flesh and blood. On the cross, Jesus is crucified for your sin. Paul says he became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means on the cross, all that God would hate about you. All that you have done that would anger and infuriate and cause the judgment and justice of God to rain down upon you, Jesus took upon himself and he is crucified so that when you believe in him, you are no longer guilty of any of those sins. In flesh and blood, Jesus lived a perfect life. All that God would demand of you. Perfect righteousness, that's what it takes to get into heaven. Jesus completed it in full. He was true to God so he could be faithful to you. And when you believe in him, Jesus' perfect life is credited to you. The promise is yes and amen in Jesus. That means there is nothing, listen to this, there is nothing keeping God from being faithful to you. Nothing. His promise has been handed to you, not just with nail-scarred hands. His promise to you, is nail-scarred hands. And so now, because you have been credited with his death and you have been credited with his righteousness, God can love you as he loved the Son. He can fulfill all of his promises to you the same way he would fulfill all of his promises to Jesus. You are you're, We don't just see the glory, the sinless sovereignty of Jesus from a distance. When we believe in him, it is credited to us. And God will fulfill all of his promises to Jesus. And in Jesus, he will do everything for you that he says he will do. This this means he won't even hold your sin against you. This means when you die, he won't hold you in the ground. And send you to hell, which is what you deserve. No, he will be faithful the same way he was faithful to Jesus in raising you up. Why? You have seen the glory, the promise fulfilled, full of faithfulness in flesh and blood. And if you believe in Him, that promise is given to you. You're covered in that promise. And so the good news is you can trust God no matter what. You can trust the Word no matter what. The Word is taken on flesh. The promise has taken on flesh and blood. And some of you are here today and the world around you is one big failed promise. Some of you wake up every day and you expect more things from this life than this life will ever give you. And some of you are here today and you're worn out by that expectation. The world around you is one big failed promise. Those who committed to loving you the most have not come through on their word. You know why? They're sinful and they're not sovereign. They're not strong enough to do everything that they say they will do for you. And they're sinful, just like you. And we often serve ourselves instead of others. And you put a lot of trust and expectations into others and you've been hurt. Political polls, they promise certain things and they don't follow through. The happiness of certain things in this world, they promise delight and they don't come through. And what John is saying here is the word of God has come through in flesh and blood on a cross and an empty tomb and you can trust God no matter what. You know, you'll be a lot happier if you expect less from this world. And you will love others a lot better if you trust Jesus more. Why is that? You're putting undue expectations on the world around you. And sometimes you put undue expectations on others around you who aren't sovereign and they're sinful. And that's why you're miserable. But you know what Peter said to Jesus? At one point he said, get away from me. And then after Jesus fed thousands and thousands of people and many people departed, when he told them who he was and said, follow me, take up your cross, and people started leaving. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else can we go? You have the words of life, meaning you have a promise kept that gives us life. Where else are we going to go? You're the only one who fulfills your promises. God's promises to us in flesh and blood, nail scarred hands are flesh and blood crucified for us. And in closing, I also want to point you to another reality. You see, Jesus taking on flesh and blood also reminds us that there is a profound glory that happens in flesh and blood. You see, we often think about true spirituality and we think that it happens in another realm, in another experience. But Jesus came to this world. He lived in this world, on this planet. And if the Spirit of God indwelling Him and the Word of God in flesh lived in this world, then true spirituality happens in this world. And what John is trying to tell us is the same way that God created, we read this earlier, God created everything out of nothing. He created with His Word. In Jesus, the Word of God There is a new creation that is dawning. He has spoken by his word. The reason you exist has come into the world in flesh and blood. The reason you exist has fulfilled all of God's promises to you in flesh and blood. This reason has come into the world and it is creating a new creation. And this new world exists in this room right now in flesh and blood with access to God as we worship in a cold warehouse. Think about that for a moment. The same way God took on flesh, the Spirit of God inhabits flesh, those who would believe in Jesus right now. And we walk around today, and we leave here today, and we get in cars, and we go and we walk the pinnacles, and we go to Nuevo, because that's where everybody from church goes, and, and we get ready for BFG, and we take naps, and we walk around talking about a glory in flesh, and it's only because the Word took on flesh, And we look around, we don't see this as very amazing. But the rest of the cosmos, the world, sin, Satan, death, the forces of darkness, the demons peer in on this glory in flesh. And I imagine some of them look at one another and say, why do they even need to eat food?